This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. So 12 months later from Serena Williams' triumph over her sister against Venus Williams, we have the first of the all-Belgian Grand Slam final battles. Justine Ennan against Kim Kleisters in 2003. Catherine, you looked like a young Kim Kleisters when you were young. I've seen the photos. I did. Yeah, I really did. Um, Similar tennis. My, my, my friends used to comment on it and I tried to impersonate her uh on the tennis court that that went less well but facially I had it down did that impact who you supported back in the day well I did support Kim Clijsters but it's difficult to to say isn't it because everybody supported Kim Clijsters you couldn't you couldn't not wish her well right yeah. I mean is there any answers on a postcard that's an interesting uh, one, though. If you, if you disliked Kim Clijsters. Now, I mean, everybody liked Kim Clijsters, but did you support NN against Clijsters with that single-handed backhand and all that sort of thing? What about you, Matt? Well, apparently I looked like Justine NN. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can vouch for that. Um, yeah, we put up a side-by-side photo of Justine NN and Kim Clijsters as, as juniors, as kids. I'm not, I'm not sure when it was taken, Um but yes, we put it on our Instagram story and the first three replies were, oh, I had to look hard to think that this wasn't Matt against Catherine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I always loved watching Justin Enan play, I must say. That is a photo that will be mocked up. <laughs> yep. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, We're it's, working on it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because here you've got two players. We, we'd had so few Belgian players over the years. We were talking about um, Philippe de Wolf the other day, reaching the semi-finals of the French Open playing Gustave Curtin, but it was rare that a, a, a player from Belgium would make... I mean, you, you, you did 
C players, Sabine Appleman's, I think it was, who played many years ago. Um, the the Ruckus Brothers. The Ruckus Brothers, yeah. Xavier Melise, players like that. But these two were a completely different level altogether. Suddenly you've got the two, well, two players that would reach world number one, win Grand Slam titles, just coming along at exactly the same time. And yet they could not be more different in terms of upbringing, in terms of outlook. You've just described it there, Catherine, that that you would warm to Kim Kleisters and everybody did and and Justine was of just a very different type of character. We're going to hear from uh, Justine a little bit later in the show about the rivalry they had and, and the importance of it to her. We're going to hear from Mary Carrillo as well, who obviously covered as a commentator their entire careers. So always fascinating to hear her uh, verdict on things. But they would meet in 2003 in the final, which was just... It would have been two years after they'd met in the semi-finals, of course, of the French Open, the year that Jennifer Capriati won, beating Kim Kleisters. And it was interesting to, to see um, in the preparation for this that it was Enan who'd had a healthy lead in that semi-final before Kleisters came back and won it. Um, so this was a rematch. This was a big deal for both players. And the favourite bit of the podcast for Catherine is what was going on in the world in 2003 when this took place. Are you ready, Catherine? Mm-hmm. The I have to say the best of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> the, the final Concorde flight took place in 2003. Did you know that? Yeah, well, I used to live under the Concorde flight path, so I was very familiar with goings-on with Concorde. Yeah, much missed, no doubt. Uh, Saddam Hussein was captured. Uh, Arnold... well, it's, the, it's the change of it's the change of pace, which is so very partridge. I can't help it. I just don't know whether you're going next. I don't know whether you're going whimsical or Saddam Hussein. <laughs> I just go with what, what, what's ever on my list. Okay, <laughs> just stuff that happened. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> was elected governor of california catherine you thought i was going to go with starred in total recall or something like that but no no i really didn't no (laughs) (laughs) he was elected governor of california so there you go the terminator Mm. um so that's what was going on generally in the world (laughs) i mean it's it's some of what was going on generally in the world if you're looking for a conclusive historical uh memory jogger maybe the tennis podcast isn't for you um but these are just little snippets 2003 was the year i just took two weeks off school to watch wimbledon and my my parents didn't seem to have a problem with that which was just uh, on reflection a really uh excellent progressive parenting decision (laughs) yeah i've I've always rated your parents It, it was post as level so it's sort of like that weird period of time where you're not really doing anything and my education was better spent watching tennis it turns out yeah i as levels i don't don't think they existed when i was studying um things change i think they exist now do they i think they've gone back to no no longer existing oh i've got an anachronistic qualification in sociology (laughs) great right okay I'm learning all the time. It's the great thing about the tennis podcast uh, and um, recording it with two people of different generations. Uh, right. So what was going on in the tennis world? Well, a few days earlier, Lewis Horner beat a slamless Roger Federer in the first round of the French Open. Remember that? That was the inspiration for John Wertheim's 
poem slash song. Oh, mm. yeah. He's got no yeah. nerve. Oh, dear. Still cuts mm. deep, that, doesn't it? Um, it, it that's a real test of uh, barometer of niche tennis knowledge, whether you can summon up the name Louis Horner. Well, you can now, uh, if you're a listener. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to us. Um, so that was going on. And what was the final in the men's tournament? Wasn't it? Was that the Verkirk year? It was. It was the streaker year. That was, was what was memorable about that final. Right. Okay. The street. There was a streaker. There was a streaker who had his modesty. Um, well, there wasn't a lot of modesty, but an attempt at modesty provided by two tennis balls sellotaped <laughs> uh, around his butt cheeks. <laughs> okay. I know this because uh, the photo of it featured in, in our our recent Roland Garros quiz for uh, yes, for predictions that. backers. I haven't just been... I mean, I have been studying the photo, but for work purposes, and, you understand. And for quiz purposes, we actually photoshopped in a couple of extra tennis balls so that he was more yeah. decently covered. I got the question right as well. Uh, I successfully uh, figured out which tennis match it was from based on the visual. Anyway, the reason I mentioned the streaker is to emphasize the point that it was not a memorable I mean both both finals were were turkeys, weren't they? It wasn't a memorable final weekend. Why why are we reliving them again? <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, no there is there is a it's point. Our entry Guys, point. Don't don't switch off. Uh, th- this was the year that Juan Carlos Ferrero beat Martin Verkirk in the men's final. However, the day before, it was Kim Kleisters against Justine Ennan and this was a a year when a lot was going on for, for Justine Innan. This was her jumping off point because she got the win and she got the win emphatically. We've just watched highlights of it. Um, I mean, there were nine minutes of highlights and the match didn't last that much longer, um, but it was six love, six four. Kleisters did make a, a bit of a fight of it in the second set and Leighton Hewitt, who was then her boyfriend, was in the, the crowd giving it the full come on at four games all in the second set. Didn't do much good because Ennan uh, went and finished it all off. But I mean, you know, as, as, an, as a kind of contest, there wasn't much to it, was there? No, quite amusing that Leighton Hewitt's longest runs at Roland Garros seem to be sitting in the box as uh, Kim Kleister's boyfriend, as she as she made a couple of finals in those years. But uh, yeah, Kleister's actually went into the match with a with a head to head lead over Enan, um, but Enan had just beaten her, I think, in Berlin on clay, and it was clear that she was the more comfortable clay court player. And yeah, first set of a Grand Slam final, six love, I think, always makes people a little bit uncomfortable um Kleisters did did have that little fight back in the second set but ultimately a, a very straightforward win for Enan at which point Kleisters is getting fed up of of losing in front of the Belgian royal family <laughs> oh yeah because we covered her loss against Capriati mm. didn't we a couple of days ago um yeah and so she would remain slamless for another couple of years so she had a, a i remember i remember commentating on the u.s open final that she ended up winning and very much the feeling she's a champion at last because it felt like a long old time 
well, I think it was this year in in o three that she she reached world number one i think the at the end of the year post u s open she was one and Enan was was two, but of course Enan had had won slams and and Kleisters hadn't, and you know as was a lot of the narrative around women's tennis throughout throughout that period with various world number ones you know that was the that was the story, the injustice of her being the world number one rather than Enan. And of course, you had the, the Williams sisters who even back then didn't play nearly as much and, and sort of aspersions were cast on that then and have been cast throughout their whole careers. So, yeah, she was um, she was uh, in some people's minds a, an, an, an unrightful world number one, an example of how the WTA ranking system was deficient. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's that's not how it's looked back upon, but there was a period of, of, of time where that was the case. If she had not managed to, to get mm. over the line, you have players like Yelena Yankovic and Dinara Safina we were talking about recently who are still, who still struggle to get fully credited with their achievements again to world number one because of the lack of grand slam title um a lot of the talk before or during that week really although she beat Kleisters in the final a lot of people remember that particular run to the title because of the match she had with serena williams in the semi-final really close match loads of controversy and mary carrillo was there covering the whole thing and uh well catherine asked her what she thought of the final first of all it wasn't that good. I remember. <laughs> I think, I think didn't Kleisters win like four games? Yeah, correct. I, that, four. That, that, that first set went by in a hurry. And, and Justine was a, you talk about a, a great clay court player. In my mind, the last real rivalry Serena has had with anyone was against Justine Anna. I mean, that, I love watching them play. And in fact, Anna beat Serena in that much talked about semifinal that year, uh, where Anna cheated. I mean, she she had put her hand up, denied raising her hand to stop a point. It was ugly. It was ugly. And Serena had won the last four majors uh, going into that match in 2003. Uh, but I thought, and I love that Justine was, uh, she had the kind of game that could combat Serena's game. There was one year, and I forget, Matt would know right away. There was one year where... <laughs> Justine beat Serena in three straight major quarterfinals. It was like crazy. It was crazy stuff. Um, that I think was the last player that I relied, I could reliably count on as being a good rival to Serena's game. So come on then, Matt. Do you remember? 2007. Yes, I do remember it well because uh, they had a, had a really dramatic final in Miami where Serena did manage to win, but then they played, yeah, quarterfinals, French Open, Wimbledon, US Open, and Enan won all of them. Um, just to beat Serena on those stages repeatedly. You know how much Serena hates losing to someone. She so often gets her revenge, and she, she just couldn't against Enan. And um, this may be maybe conjecture on my part, but I always felt like Serena in that stage of her career was less worried about the other end of the court completely. She felt like if she played well, she would win. I think she's perhaps got slightly tactically more aware as her career's gone on, but I think Enan played those matches so well tactically and really made Serena think and got in her head. And 
Serena didn't have another rival like that. And I always, I always enjoyed watching their matches for that reason. It was a great contrast. And also it made you see a different side of Serena's game, I think. Mm. I, I think back then as well, I think Serena, whilst she wanted to win, she wasn't as concerned with the, her st- position in history as she became at that sort of stage she'd won half a dozen grand slam titles and i don't think she was as committed as she would end up becoming but that's that isn't really fair to take away anything from enan who was who i mean in that u.s open that you described she beat serena and venus back to back in straight sets both of them. i mean that when does that happen i i accept that maybe they uh serena wasn't at her best in in all of those matches but she became a heck of a player really Enan. and given her physical stature the the height that she is five foot five inches tall and and you know she was having to to create power with her stroke production and and it was fascinating to watch that in the rivalry as well with um with Kleisters but the match that Mary's reference in there I mean those are strong words aren't they she says she cheated now what she's referring to is the fact and there are a couple of incidents we've just watched actually the highlights of the semi-final and against uh, Serena Williams as well from that French Open 2003 there's a moment where um, Serena's about to serve and Enan raises her hand to stop her, doesn't she? Um, and the the umpire doesn't seem to, to see that. Serena clearly does see it and, and expects to then be taking two more serves, a first serve again, and yet she's told to play a second serve. Um, and and it's really uncomfortable actually because the crowd start booing Serena in a really uncomfortable way. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of tension out there. Yeah, I'm kind of glad we only watched highlights of that because I found I found myself squirming during those 11 minutes with the with the crowd treatment of Serena. I mean, possibly in in the scheme of things, quite a a minor infraction, but she did cheat. The umpire the umpire said second serve to Serena. Serena said no. She had her hand up, and the umpire goes to check with Enan. Did you have your hand up? And she says no, which is which is a lie that is that is cheating um and actually i was i was incredibly impressed with how serenely uh serena dealt with it at the time i mean you could see that you know she was probably seething underneath but she she carried on with business and there was actually a it looked like the fight had gone from serena actually it looked like i don't know my interpretation of watching it now is that that atmosphere swirling around her was so uncomfortable that she she kind of wanted out of it um and i i find that very understandable you know can you imagine had the roles been reversed and it was serena that had done that how she would have been received and actually they ended up being serena for that it was it was a hugely uncomfortable watch i found i really hate Mm. it when a crowd becomes anti someone rather than pro who they're playing and that it often feels like that with Serena it feels like the crowd is supporting the opponent because they're anti-Serena and it makes me so uncomfortable there's so many layers to that booing Um, and yes I mean Serena we didn't see it on the highlights but apparently she left the court in tears and um, and said in impressed that uh, NM was lying and fabricating and absolutely the video 
the video shows that yeah, Enan did have her hand up and didn't and didn't admit to it. And and Serena at that time had won had won four slams in a row. She'd just completed the Serena slam. And of course, okay, she was only one into the calendar year, but surely she must have been thinking in terms of of the calendar slam at that point. That match was a huge deal for her. I know, as you said, David, it was a period where perhaps her commitment waxed and waned, but her commitment surely would have been bang on it throughout throughout that tournament and that period. Oh, yeah, I, I, in that period, yeah. I was, I was talking a few years later more, really, ah, okay. when, when she was losing in straight sets uh, in the 07 um, year. But the it did feel at that point as if her biggest battle had been won, and that's not to try to detract from Kleisters, and obviously we're, we're saying this in hindsight because we know that what the score ended up being. But actually, in an interview that we... We watched last night um, that uh, Enan did with the Tennis Channel. She said, after I'd won that match against Serena, I knew I was going to win the final. I knew it. And and at the handshake, when Kim Kleister's shook my hand, she said she knew it as well because she knew what I'd been through as well. She knew the commitment that I'd had to Paris, to win in Paris. And I think it's worth going back in time and just, just reflecting on, on that history that, that uh, Enan had with that city and that tournament because she said she was taken to Paris, to Roland Garros by her mother when she was just a, a child in 1992 during the, the Celes Graf final that we covered for you here on Roland Garros relived a few days ago. And she was a huge Steffi Graf fan. She said, I was standing five meters away from Graf while she was playing that match. And I was absolutely devastated when she lost it in that incredible third set. But she said, I, I said to my mom right there, one day I'm going to be playing on this court. And she was only nine years old at the time. And uh, she said her, her mother had said, oh, well, you know, maybe you will. <laughs> um, not thinking, I guess, for a moment that that, that could come true. But um, but that's the pledge that Enan made to herself and to her mother. And her mother very sadly passed away a few years later. She got cancer when Enan was 12 years of age and uh, died a year later. And Enan said she struggled for a couple of years really to, to know whether she wanted to play tennis after that and dedicate herself to the sport, but then decided to really commit to that pledge. And she said she felt she knew she would do it one day. And um, and sure enough, here she was crowning that moment for herself. And it was the start of something really special. And of course, it would become just a really special important city for Enan throughout her whole career and uh, it's something that Mary Carrillo reflected on as well because having covered that story throughout she knew that there was a special relationship there. There are some players that just sparkle in certain cities um, and if you are a clay quarter if you are born on that surface Roland Garros is you know I mean that's where you aim that's that's nirvana you know, and 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 I do believe that for someone like Justine, that was and again, of course, her mom died when she was just 12. So she, she never she never her mom never got to see her her glory. But, yeah, I think there are certain cities, certain that that certain players truly embrace and the fans embrace them back. You know, even Chrissy and I know you've you've had a great conversation with Chrissy and I, I can't wait to hear it. But. <laughs> You know, Chrissy knows that she was very well accepted and embraced in Paris. You know, from the time she was young, uh, the seven-time champion there, they liked 
stylistically, they liked her look. They liked her deportment. You know, they loved her, her demeanor. Uh, and they, they just took to her right away and they really never let her go. Um, and I think that's part, that's at least part of the, the reason why she played so well there. She, you know, remember when Boris Becker famously said about Wimbledon, he said, I, I wait 50 weeks for the two weeks of Wimbledon. <laughs> um, I think there are players who feel that way about, about certain tournaments for, and uh, I mean, she didn't get to win Wimbledon, which, which is too bad for her all time record. Cause she could have, you know, Moresmo got her in that final, the one shot she really looked at it. But I think a lot of players, depending on where they're from, aim towards one major in particular. Yeah. Um, she won obviously in other places as well did uh justin and but it was it was perfect for her wasn't it paris she had everything in terms of i think the surface was just perfectly suited to her as was the city itself but i mean her record the in in the years that followed matt was just just extraordinary really yeah, real dominance actually um 2005 to 2007 she won a hat-trick of titles um back to back in 06 and 07 without dropping a set at one point she won 40 straight sets at Roland Garros um Monica Seles is the only other woman to have won three French Opens in a row in the Open era so we're talking absolute dominance at, and it was side by side with Nadal's dominance in in the men's draw of those years and I always remember thinking the way Enam would win the tournament on the Saturday with a flourish with her one-handed backhand with her precise footwork with her sort of clever intelligent tennis it, it then almost felt like a bit of a troll at Federer the next day who had such a similar game and a similar <laughs> style and he just couldn't get over the line at Roland Garros and obviously that was because Nadal was in the way but to, to watch Enan win it with such style and such grace was was just always thrilling really in that in that period i love the i mean obviously elements of the um Anand's history with roland garros are, are are really really sad you know her, her mum passing away at such a delicate age um but i love i i love thinking about Enan being there watching that 92 final that we've just recently relived and it's fresh in our minds how epic that was. And I love now, or up until three months ago, <laughs> watching uh, epic matches unfolding and thinking, I wonder what kid is in the crowd or watching on the telly that in 15 years' time is going to talk about this match and say this was the moment, this was the match that that inspired them to to greatness. I, I, I love that thought. It's really something really romantic about it. John McEnroe said that he thought she had the best single-handed backhand in the history of the sport. I remember from those years hearing a lot of McEnroe commentary on... On, he did a lot of commentary on women's tennis, doesn't he? Still does. Always, always does the the women's final um, for for the BBC, doesn't he? Because he at Wimbledon, because he does the the men's final for for US TV, and he used to go gaga about Enan's backhand. He used to just sort of go into a trance like state 
when he was talking about it, didn't he? I, I really <laughs> remember that. He would, it's like sort of no one else was in the room, but John McEnroe and Justine Enan's backhand. <laughs> it, it, when you look at her backhand, it doesn't feel quite possible, the, the, the way she contorts her body and has such a pure strike and it's so reliable. I mean, it is, there's nothing else quite like it around, men or women, is there? Yeah, it's unfair to mere mortals for her to make that look possible because it's not for the rest of us. And it's not something, whereas with Kleisters, you know, I felt like I could go out there and do an impersonation of her and, and give that a go. Uh, <laughs> with Enan, I mean, there was just no point in trying to emulate that, which I mean, I assume most coaches wouldn't coach young players to be like her because it and because it just wouldn't be possible for most for most kids i mean it's it, she's defying physics and biology and everything but making it work this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. The, the, the rivalry between them, the relationship between them, Enon and Kleister's is fascinating, isn't it? We were always trying to get to the bottom of it. Are they friends? Do they get along? Are they, you know? Do they hate each other? Um, you know, it was it was always difficult to to really put your finger on it because publicly, whenever they would speak, they were they were mostly polite and cordial. There were flashpoints. There were things that Kleister's dad said that uh, that stirred things up. He, he very sadly passed away eleven years ago now. Um, but at the time when they when Kleister's first came along, he was he was very presence and, and speaking a lot um and 
Yeah, it was difficult to know exactly where they both stood in relation to each other. They had a lot of matches. It was fairly evenly split with the the, the win-loss record, but it was Enon winning all the big matches of the slams pretty much. Mary followed this as well, and she, she sensed that tension. I think it was weird because, um, well, apart from everything else, Kleister's thought that Justine pulled off a whole bunch of phony injury timeouts against her when they played. And I think that's probably true. I mean, I've, look, Kleister's had a big game for Clay. I mean, she big old swings and she moved beautifully. Uh, talk about sliding. I mean, <laughs> nobody could slide and recover their balance the way that, that Kleister's could, um, even on a hard court. Um, so there was tension between them. I think because Kleister's was so universally loved, they came from a different part of Belgium. And I don't know enough about Belgium to know why there's such a big difference between where Justine's from and where Kleister's is from. But I know that it sort of divided the fan base. Um, and it, it almost felt like there was some, in the Battle of Belgium, there was some disputed territory um, among the fans and, and in their games. I mean, Kleister's game was different from Justine's. She wasn't, Justine wasn't nearly as big physically, but boy, oh boy, her combinations were as good as anybody's. So it was kind of weird watching them play. And I think you're right. I think, I think Kim ended up with a better overall record, but when it really counted in majors, Justine was locked down. And, and I think Justine liked that rivalry more than Kim. Frankly, I think she looked forward to those matches maybe more than Kim did. What made Enan a better clay court player than Kleister's? Or was it all mental? Uh, again, I, I, I go back to how much I respected the mental fortitude of, of the greats from, from back then. It's what, it's what separated them. But more than that, I mean, we all know that, that story about how when Justine was a little girl, she and her mom watched the French Open final in the stands. I think she had won something and they had given her tickets to see the, and she told her mother, one day that will be me. I mean, she obviously Justine had, had it in her head and in her heart that she was going to be a champion at Roland Garros one day. Um, her game was, she's a beautiful, I always go to someone's feet first. She moves so beautifully. I mean, footwork and foot speed. Um, she liked attacking the net. She knew when she'd hit something good, something she can come in on. Um, you know, Kleister's, I just remember, and Kleister's liked being up there too, but she had those big old swing volleys that used to, Made me a little jumpy. <laughs> Take these big roundhouse swings. And, uh, often they were good. <laughs> often she'd like knock out a fan in the stands, but <laughs> not often. But she, that, I think her game was so beautifully. She had a terrific coach, Justine Anna. She was beautifully taught and she was aggressive, but she could be aggressive from everywhere on the court better than most people could. She was looking to, she was looking to for aggression, and she knew how to make combinations work on clay that that allowed her to win the point. She was very fit, and she had beautiful concentration. I like, I really enjoyed watching her play. Yeah, didn't we all? Um, but it was it was an interesting rivalry to chart all the way through. It was always a little bit awkward, wasn't it, Catherine? And and. 
I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I think that they would say the same, they were never friends. They were never really good friends. They're, they're very different people. And yet they had to coexist and put up with with the inevitable comparisons between them that everybody would make. I remember at the time that um, Justine Annan got got married um, to Pierre-Yves Arden. At the time, she, she became Justine Annan Arden for a few years before that marriage broke down. I remember all the commentators mentioning the fact that Kim Clijsters wasn't invited to her wedding, as if, you know, that was a mark of just how awful their relationship was. Um, but, but, you know, they they... They weren't close friends. There was no obligation for them to be friends. I, I think maybe because Kim Clijsters was such a genial personality, I guess maybe people thought, well, how could you not be friends with Kim Clijsters? But I think the answer to that lies in how different their personalities were. I think maybe how much more challenging Enan found it to to balance sort of the human side of 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 life with being a champion i think that was more of a trade off for her than it was for kim clijsters and also the the political and historical landscape of of belgium you've got these two really distinct territories with a lot of tension between them different languages um, different languages and they when they grew up in juniors together there's a story about them Staying in, staying in the same hotel rooms quite a lot because they were at the same tournaments, and they had to communicate via hand signals because they didn't speak one another's languages. Kim Kleist is from the the Flemish speaking region, and Enan from the French. And I think when you have countries with with m- multiple native languages, you just assume that you know whatever whatever region you're from, you can understand and speak some of the other, you know, you'll be able to communicate verbally with, with anyone from the same country as you. So to, to think of these two kids sort of um, miming at one another in order to communicate, even though they're, they're country, country women is, is a weird thought, but there is, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting country, Belgium, in that respect. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, that still remains, remains the case. So the backdrop of all of that kind of, you know, didn't lay great foundations for friendship, I don't think. And I think when language is at the heart of a country's split or division, it actually has a real effect on the people because the way you think is all to do with the language you speak. And I think... And it, and also it plays into all walks of life. It, it plays into politics, schooling, newspapers, media, TV. You're just surrounded by a completely different perspective. And even at the tennis level, the Belgian Tennis Federation is split by the Flemish one and the French one. So they grew up, okay, they played junior events together, but they grew up with these different federations. So I think they were sort of naturally going along quite different paths right from the beginning. And I'm sure that... There were these differences, but also the various parts of the Belgian press were probably looking to spin those differences and perhaps perhaps make them fit the stereotypes of those different regions. Um, I also think it's interesting that their careers, or the, certainly the main part of the career, what we're talking about here, 2003 to 2007, they were really quite young still, Justine Enna and Kim Kleisters. They were, you know 
Kleister's retired originally at 23, Enin at 25. They maybe didn't quite have the time to get the perspective or to get the distance from each other. I think when they came back in 20, well, 2009-2010, I think they played Fed Cup together that year. And I was reading some some quotes about how then the relationship was a little bit easier. They'd had that time away. And Kleister said, the relationship we've got now is the, how I always wanted it to be. So I do think the tension probably really was coming from Enam. We've talked a bit about her slightly prickly character in, in comparison with Kleisters. And, and I read that um, Le Keep were trying to do an interview for ages with Justine Enam and they couldn't get her, they couldn't get her. And then in 2009, Kleisters announced in March that she was going to be returning later in the year. The next day, they got a call from Justine Enan saying, I'm free to do that interview. <laughs> uh, and Enan announced that she was coming back from the sport a week after Kleisters won the US Open in 2009. So I think Enan maybe had a bit more of a problem with, you know, she didn't want to be in Kleisters' shadow, I think. And Kleisters was maybe a little bit more comfortable, perhaps a little less driven than Enan. Maybe that's why their slam tallies ended up as they did when there was probably little difference in their actual ability on the court. Um, but yeah, I mean, this year, 2003, there was some definite aggro. I think it really came to a head in uh, San Diego that year when they played in the final and Kleisters accused Enan of poor sportsmanship for taking a taking a medical timeout when she was trailing and and, and then came back and won the match. And Kleister said, it's not the first time she's done this. I think she probably has to do it in every one of our matches. It's a sign she's not at her best and she has to resort to other means to get out of scraps. And then Enan said, she can think what she wants. Uh, but she said that because she's disappointed that she lost. I adhere to fair play. I had to change the bandage that was protecting the blister because it was rubbing. So, you know, there was that back and forth there. And then a guy called Carl Mays, is it Carl Mays? Yeah. Um, who tutored Kleisters for a few years. Well, a long time, actually. said that the two players have had a string of heated exchanges behind the scenes. And he said that earlier arguments between them have been kept out of the press because of an understanding that he had with Carlos Rodriguez, Enan's coach. Uh, he said... We just didn't want the press to get hold of what is an intense rivalry and they just blow it out of proportion. If these incidents had got out, we knew how bad it would have been. Um, there were situations when I had to tell Kim to calm down and Justine hadn't meant something or there'd been a misunderstanding and I'm sure Carlos was doing the same with Enan. So there definitely was a friction there. I'm not sure they were enemies. They were perhaps made out to be enemies. I'm not sure they were, but they definitely definitely weren't friends in that original portion of their careers hopefully i think it's maybe mellowed a little bit since it's amazing how with all these matches we're reliving how we sort of keep coming back to talking about how young everyone yeah. is now in tennis <laughs> all we talk about is how flipping old everyone is <laughs> back then everyone was so young and retiring in their mid-20s and yeah and, and age does I think, give them a sense of perspective. Mm. Plus the fact that the career is now in the past. They can look back at it with a different vantage point. Enan says now in the interview that she did with Tennis Channel last year, she seems really candid. She seems really honest, quite comfortable being open about some of these 
elements to her career. She said, look, when I played, I didn't want to, I didn't play to have friends. I didn't play to be on the circuit and be in the public eye. I played because I was competitive and I loved tennis and I wanted to win. Her competitiveness comes cascading through in, in everything she says. And she doesn't hide away from that. Whereas, Kleisters and there's an article that that Matt sent us from the Observer, which which acknowledges that part of her self esteem was almost about wanting to be liked. She wanted people to like her, and she 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 was likable. You know, she mm-hmm. was immediately likable, as you, as you said at the start of the podcast, Catherine. They they were very different people in that way. Yeah, and 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 it's the it's another theme that's been running through tennis relived with Enan, which is you know these these prodigious young talents with great success and often overbearing parents i know she was estranged from her for from her father for a long time she's now um reconciled with him but he was instrumental in her her early career um you know not being able to develop any kind of sense of self just not having any sort of emotional or or life maturity and she talked about that upon her upon her uh, comeback um at the start of of 2010 um and she said uh that um i thought tennis was the reason i found it difficult to find a good balance in life when i came out of this bubble where i was protected i faced real life i had to breathe without tennis i needed this time to think about what happened in my whole life and realize who i am away from tennis she said perhaps i just became an adult you know it's it, it, this struggle to be a well adjusted adult as well as being a <laughs> precocious tennis champion um, is fascinating to me and not always something it's sort of comfortable thinking about because it does feel like there's an inevitable trade-off. And and as we've discussed with the likes of Capriati, it's not necessarily a trade-off that they're aware that they're making in the moment. You're only aware in retrospect of what you're missing. Now, that it- doesn't mean you, you they any of them regret regret it i'm sure you look at your trophy cabinet and think yeah i i'm i'm all right with the fact that i was a bit weird for a few years there (laughs) but (laughs) um yeah that doesn't mean there's there's not sacrifices there there were two very different retirements weren't they because kleist as it took her until 2005 us open to finally win a, a grand slam title she would win more and then retire and then she made her come back and immediately won the US Open again, having uh, given birth to Jada, who you remember came running onto the court to celebrate with, with her mum uh, in, in just one of the lovely scenes that we've probably ever seen on a tennis court. Enan retired on May the 15th, 2008. She'd won her last 35 sets of tennis at Roland Garros, and she retired just a week or so before Roland Garros in 2008 basically said said she was burnt out said she just couldn't didn't want to do it anymore wanted as as you were kind of alluding to there Catherine to to discover herself that she felt she'd given up life in order to to be dominant at tennis and uh wanted to to be there for her sisters and 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 a family and just be part of something else that's what she said and it was only just over a year later that she 
she announced her comeback and um, and had another year on the circuit before an elbow into injury intervened. But it's I do find it interesting just the whole arcs of their careers, of their lives, and now how they look back at it. And here we were at the Australian Open this year, and, and Justine was there for TV. She was commentating for Eurosport, and I got invited to uh, to a, a press event with the Eurosport team and just got a chance to speak to Justine and Anne just for a few minutes. And we were obviously looking ahead to various rivalries within the sport and, and something that Naomi Osaka had said in the preceding couple of days, she'd said she hoped to one day have a rivalry, kind of like Enan had with Kleisters. And and so I asked Enan how she viewed that sort of comment. Of course, you need that. You need to play a lot the same player to uh, push yourself a little bit further. I uh, Personally, when Kim was at her best level at the same time as, as I was, it was a big motivation because we pushed each other to, to get better. It's, the concurrence is healthy. We need it. And that's why on the men's tour, these guys are so phenomenal. It's also because they're... They have been there at the same time pushing. They use that energy to get better uh, on their own way. And uh, so, of course, I understand Ozaka when she's telling that she needs that. All the players need that. The fans need that because they want to, you know, in two or three years, oh, these girls, they have played, uh, I don't know, uh, 15 times against each other. And now it's getting so close because that makes the story. And uh, at the end, that's what we need because it's a... It's a job of emotions, that's what we share. And uh, we need psychologically to see how people are going to play us, are going to react in, in different kind of situations. So, uh, yeah, that's what we hope for. And, and, and I'm sure that uh, we are on the right way. Serena and you had a, a good rivalry, mm-hmm. played, I think, 14 times and you won six times yeah, against... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yes, she, she won eight times, I won six times, and which is good to record against Serena but uh, Serena really pushed me in another dimension when I was playing I I remember clearly that I was intimidated by her I was scared of playing her that's for sure as a lot of players have been maybe less today Um, but then I said okay what qualities can I use and what is the self-conviction I can develop about the, the fact that I can beat her? And that's something that I worked a lot by myself and with my coach on, always trying to push myself to believe that I could use my qualities, my strengths to beat her. And uh, and I did a couple of times. And, and, and I believe also today when we look at the four uh, finals that she lost uh, in Grand Slam, the, the fact that the players have played their best tennis also, these four girls, which means that... Um, Mentally, things have changed uh, a little bit. And now, Serena, after running for another Grand Slam, uh, she will probably try to put a little bit more pressure on the opponents also to make try to um, understand that she's still there and she wants to win. Fascinating, isn't it, with hindsight? I, I love the fact that we, we, Catherine, you and I, over many years, have got to speak to great tennis players whose careers at the top are over because we've spent time on the champions tour and and it's always so interesting to get that sort of perspective and it's it's often so different so much more enlightening so much more open and honest even i think with themselves than it would have been previously yeah it's so much better isn't it (laughs) than the sort of media trained defensive i don't want to get into it because you know it'll just bring me hassle and abuse on social media and more attention from the press. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. 
it's great. I mean, look, I understand all 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 those reasons why uh, why athletes don't always give the most scintillating interviews during their careers. Um, but I do love it when they retire and let the floodgates open. Yeah, exactly. And that's well, that's one of the big things we wanted to achieve with tennis relived. And we've got, as Mary was saying a little earlier, we've got the full interview with Chris Evert that Catherine did it's an hour long it's just just a wonderful trip down memory lane it just also gets you inside of the mind of one of the great champions we've got the yannick noah interview to come as well um and lindsay davenport too i mean we we, we feel really lucky that we've had chance to to speak to these players and uh, and we hope you're enjoying these insights as well so what have we got tomorrow folks where are we going in the roland garros time machine next we're going to 2005 and the semi-final of the men's tournament, Rafael Nadal versus Roger Federer, their first ever Grand Slam meeting against each other. Wow. Can't wait. I don't think I, I, don't think I saw that match live because it took place while I was at Queen's running around and trying to keep up with everything. When you work at Queen's the week before is just in your subconscious completely, isn't it? There's so much going on when you're preparing for an event. It's it's difficult to get to grips with things that have gone on the week before. I was thinking that about Halle and Stuttgart. I've no idea what's happened at those tournaments in the last five years. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Uh, so, well, we'll look forward to that, see if we can find a decent recording of it. I believe um, we've got the full match for that one. Hey, Federer won them all, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Just to, just to fill you in. <laughs> Uh, all the Hallers, yes. Not all the matches against Nadal, as we uh, <laughs> as we obviously know, which uh, will start that rivalry at Grand Slams tomorrow in our next edition of Roland Garros Relived. Hope you're enjoying these shows. Do tell your friends uh, if you are. And uh, thanks for all the lovely messages we've been receiving. Honestly, it's just so so heartwarming for us and uplifting to, to hear from you. And uh, yeah, we've got our email address in the show notes if you'd like to send us an email or get in touch with us on social media. Or, or go in our Reddit community and, and have a chat with some fellow listeners. Um, it's, it's thriving over there. And vote for us in the uh, People's Choice Award category for the British Podcast Awards so that we can be not lying when we say that we're award-winning. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal, folks. All right? Get on it. Speak to you tomorrow. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.